Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, as we record this on Monday, June 28th, we are in day five of the Miami building collapse. So far, the death toll is at 11, with still 150 missing. Uh, And unfortunately, I I have to assume that they're probably uh, dead at this point. It is the worst non-terrorism-related building collapse uh, in the United States. And a lot of photos have been coming out uh, since day one. Um, There was some great coverage by the staff over at the Miami Herald, David Santiago, Danielle Varela, Charles Trainer Jr. Uh, That's the local papers. It was uh, was great to see them covering this hometown disaster. We also saw photo packages coming out of the New York Times and Washington Post that was using a combination of freelancers as well as wire images uh, from Getty and AFP and Reuters. Man, what what can we even say about this? The the photos of the the pile, obviously reminiscent of 9/11, and there are strong echoes to other building collapses from around the world. Uh, I thought immediately of the 2013 building collapse in Dhaka that killed 1,100 people. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Some observations about the photos. The aerials for me were really effective in communicating sort of the scope of destruction. We saw a number of people who were in boats kind of offshore taking a look inland uh, to capture it. A lot of telephoto lenses, a lot of photos from the beach of mourners. Uh, What was your reaction to all of the coverage? Yeah, I I thought it was interesting how each paper had a slightly different take on their their slideshows. Obviously, hats off to the Miami Herald for doing amazing local news coverage of this event. Um, They've got uh, Santiago out there. He's actually photographing. He is a deputy photo editor of the paper, and he also covers sports. So he's got a lot on his plate. Yeah. (laughs) I particularly, the, the images that were published in the Washington Post, that slideshow really had a feeling, a 360 feeling. I mean, you just mentioned that we, you know, we see photos from the water, right? From looking out onto the beach. Um, We see people praying in churches nearby. We see flowers. Um, And that, the slideshow that the Washington Post published just really feels like you are going around the building in a 360 view and then up above. Um, And it really gives you an idea of the toll, the tragic toll that's happened. I, I was interested in, in seeing what level of editing and also the presentation that the different media outlets were using. You know, the Miami Herald had a lot of images that were taken what seemed like seconds, if not minutes apart. Uh, it didn't mm. seem like there was a heavy edit against it. And they were just trying to put out photos, as, you know, as soon as it, it was transmitted back to the paper. Um, the New York Times has a Rather than a slideshow, they, they have a tendency nowadays to embed a lot of images into the article so that there's a rolling narrative um, along with it. And then the Washington Post has that kind of swipe right uh, presentation. Um, for me personally, I found, I, I agree with you, I thought the Washington Post had the, had the best overall sense of what was going on. Mm-hmm. There was a photo of a woman who was backlit by... Uh, ambulance and police uh, sirens and lights that had this, you know, very visually distinct feel to it. Um, that sort of reminded me of the um, the Atlanta Asian spa killings because that was so much neon in that in that area as well. Um, so, I mean, not to get clinical about it, but but it is very interesting to see, 
emerging news, spot news happening and seeing how it's covered in these, you know, at a national level versus a local local level. The other thing that I'll point out is, you know, many people have seen this by now, but there was surveillance video from an adjacent building, uh, you know, just a security cam that shows in the middle of the night this building collapsing. And you see that center part of the building collapse. And then you see that east part of the building swaying for several seconds. I think they said it was five or six seconds before that also collapses. I, I just can't imagine what it was like to be awoken you know, in that situation, the, the, the video is horrifying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just horrifying. I think the images that speak most strongly to me are when you can kind of see um, the belongings of, of the people just kind of on the edge of where the building had fallen, such as bunk, twin bunk beds yeah. um, or suitcases. You know, it really, it, it reminds you of those little remnants of home and that people were there. It's, it's really tragic. Well, we hope they find a few survivors in the rubble and we hope that the community can heal but thanks again to all the photographers who are covering that event down in miami you know the millennial pink trend is just not gonna die (laughs) it's not not going anywhere let's put it that way um we you had found a great article in curbed um, about a brooklyn apartment that is completely all pink and it is a essentially a content creation studio that is rentable um, via the website Peerspace. And the owner of this Bed-Stuy Brooklyn apartment is McKinney Regal, um, who has a background in event design. She had had this apartment and was renting it via Airbnb. But then once COVID hit and traveling stopped, um, she kind of pivoted and she turned it into a content creation studio, making it extremely pink and beautiful, all pink furniture, light fixtures, the walls are pink. Um, She rents it for $125 an hour. And according to Curb, she's making three times as much monthly as she (laughs) did than when she was running it as an Airbnb, which I thought was pretty amazing. It really, I mean, talk about the entrepreneurial spirit. Props to her for kind of pivoting in the middle of of a pandemic and figuring out a way to you know, continue to make money and, and then triple what she was making. She also right. has like a lime green studio uh, in addition to the pink studio. So, yeah. you know, my first reaction was this is amazing. Good for her. There's obviously pent up demand for, you know, visually striking spaces and, and, and the monochromatic but not black or white version of a studio that content creators can use is so smart. The The other part of me was like, ah. Uh, so now we're catering to con- content creators <laughs> who are so starved for like what background they'll use for their next shoot that, they, that they're searching out these kind of kitschy looking spaces. But yeah. I guess that's the world we live in. So who am I to sort of criticize the way that she's, you know, exploiting the market uh, demand? Totally. The, the article mentions that the space has been rented out for things such as ballet shoots, birthday shoots, maternity, Mother's Day, Easter, and even a proposal, um, which I think all of those things really indicate, yeah, that content creator <laughs> emphasis on that rather than right. like professional fashion, you know, photographers. Yeah. You're not going to be seeing, you know, high end commercial shoots are not going to be happening here because they can, they have the budgets to produce those in a regular studio and use their own props and not have the same, you know, backgrounds being redeveloped. You know, I'm looking at some of the images. There's an Instagram feed 
uh, at Blush at the Regal Suite that has some images that I assume are from a variety of photographers that she's curated into her feed. And I will say, you know, some of the photos are fantastic. Some yeah. of the photos are clearly, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this one photo of a woman in lingerie. It's way too wide angle. Mm. You know, there's like some people are just using the wrong lens choices and getting a lot of distortion. Maybe that's intentional. It looks a little weird to me compared to some of the better photos in the feed. Um, mm -hmm. But you're definitely seeing uh, what seems to be more like maybe like vanity photos where somebody is celebrating you know, a birthday and they just want to be in a cool space and have a nice photo taken, which I think is, it's fantastic. It's, you know, why go to like the Sears portrait studio when you can go to the Regal suite? Right. Yeah. I would say that's a good, <laughs> that's a really good equivalent, like modern day equivalent yeah. of that. I was checking out Pure Space and you can rent all types of different locations to do productions um, and photo shoots. I mean, you can rent hotels, you can rent corner markets, like stores, um, bodegas, basically. I mean, the options are really endless. Um, and I was aware of a few other rental places similar to Pure Space, such as Home Studio List and Ave, which we will link to on the blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Um, all of them are really good options for finding locations for shoots. Speaking of spaces on Instagram, we came across a piece in the New York Times that your mother sent to you. And the, the title <laughs> of the article is Old Houses on Instagram. And mm -hmm. the, the main protagonist in the story is a photographer named Brian Sansevero, who's photographed what he says are hundreds of abandoned properties. Only a few of those, thankfully, have been curated into his Instagram feed. He also has a book called American Decay. They're, they're cool pictures. Uh, you know, I think there's, we're attracted to these, these sort of decayed old spaces. I suspect because there's an air of mystery about the homes, you mm -hmm. know, in, in guessing who lived there and what went on. There's also a slight horror movie vibe to the whole thing combined <laughs> with sort of a found photos feeling when I, when I look at these photos. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It leaves a lot of room for imagination to the viewer to kind of see like and think about who lived here. When did they live here? Why did they abandon it? Why did they leave all of yeah. their things? There's so many unanswered questions in looking at these type of photographs. Another photographer that they uh, mentioned in the piece is Kelly Gomez, who runs the website and project The Forgotten South, which is a similar set of photos of old abandoned properties. You know, I was reading through the, the, the pretty long article and after looking at the photos and I'm reading and reading and reading, I mean, it was hundreds of, of words long. And I had the sense that this is a bit of a story about nothing. You know, the, level, <laughs> the level of detail that the writer, Leah Picard, went into, you know, she's talking about the median value of many of these homes is, you know, $875,000. It's like, nah, all we really care about are <laughs> the photos. I was... I was also kind of surprised how detailed it yeah. got. I mean, she interviewed a lot of different people, which I I thought was good, but I was like, okay, yeah, just put more photos in here. Yeah. <laughs> if making slideshows at Business Insider taught me anything at all, it, it literally is that people love to look at this oh, exact type really? of content. Oh, yes. They would always outperform. I mean, it was like any slideshow with abandoned buildings or abandoned homes, mm, you were going to meet your page count so fast. I interviewed photographer Seth Lawless, um, who is 
an amazing photographer that would just go anywhere he wants to go into abandoned areas all over the world and has taken some really amazing pictures. Mm, so do, do you have a different theory than, than me about why people are so attracted to these images? Well, I do think, like I said, I do think it's about like kind of creating your own narrative um, mm -hmm. and that that leads the viewer to be feeling engaged with the images. That, that was my main guess. Also, we ran a lot of like, yeah, we ran a lot of like empty mall uh, slideshows <laughs> and people went bananas over that because <laughs> everybody wants to see the abandoned JCPenney. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Aperture is publishing another book by Jason Fulford. Um, this time the title is Photo No-No's. Uh, this book is about, quote, photographers often have unwritten lists of subjects they tell themselves not to shoot. Things that are cliche, exploitative, derivative, sometimes even arbitrary. Photo No-No's features ideas, stories from many of the world's most talented photographers and photography professionals, along with an encyclopedic list of more than a thousand taboo subjects compiled from and with pictures from contributors. Um, and actually, the very first thing listed is abandoned buildings, <laughs> which I, I thought was pretty funny. Um, Jason Fulford is a 2014 Guggenheim Fellowship recipient. The dude is smart. He, he published before in 2014 also the Photographer's Playbook, mm -hmm. which I own. And uh, that's like a compilation of photo assignments and ideas and stories um, from famous photographers to, to kind of inspire you. And, and, and it's kind of a strange book. It's, he seems it's like a, a strange book, guy. So, yeah, that's the vibe I get. I would guess that Photo No-No's is also going to kind of be that way. A little weird. Did you think that the photographer's playbook was worthwhile? Were, were they interesting assignments? No, I've spoken on this show about yeah. that. No, <laughs> I, I, di I don't. I think that there are two... Some of them are just too weird mm. that you just, you're like, what? I wanted some like concrete ideas to like go. But you know, it, it does, it makes you think about your work in a different way right. maybe. So, you know, maybe it is successful in that, in that regard. I guess there's a lot of different approaches to communicating, you know, an idea. I'm, I'm intrigued by photo no-nos, but then I came across uh, on YouTube, Aperture and Jason produced what was deemed an online variety show. And I watched snippets of this one-hour online variety show, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. Yes. Because I thought it would be related to photo no-nos, but they were just these really stream-of-consciousness uh, vignettes. And yes. I came away a little confused, to be honest. So I guess we'll just have to see. Uh, I think the book comes out early next month, and we'll just have to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm interested in taking a look at it. And yeah. Uh, listeners, you should watch this online variety show. It's on YouTube, um, and we'll link to it. it. It left me feeling also confused, Alan. So if anybody listening watches it and is like, oh, this is really cool, and I get it, then please explain it to us. Yeah, there was a guy balancing chairs, which I thought was arguably maybe the most interesting thing because they kept coming back to him. And Well, I'm, I'm one of the 900 views on that video, so <laughs> I hope they made a, you know, a half a penny from my view. Yes, me too. Finally today, we came across a piece called Silver Linings, the Unexpected Beauty of COVID Hair in the New Yorker with photos by Eleanor Carucci, who we've talked about a number of times. She had a a very famous photo of two people kind of kissing for uh, uh, for a New Yorker fiction piece. And obviously at the beginning of the pandemic, 
we couldn't get haircuts. And so a lot mm-hmm. of people started growing out their hair. They couldn't get their hair colored. They couldn't get it cut. They couldn't get it permed. They couldn't get it, you know, taken care of any way. And she has women who, during the course of COVID, decided to stop dyeing their hair. And so they're having these streaks of gray come out. They're beautiful photographs. They're very reminiscent of her 2019 book called Midlife, which explores a similar theme of aging. What, what did you think of the photos? Oh, I think they're so gorgeous. I mean, I, I have this like weird obsession with hair. So first of all, I'm just, I was naturally drawn to it. Also, I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of these women because the only thing that happened to me during quarantine was that I was shedding my hair a lot. Mm, so. yep. <laughs> not, get, not getting great yet, <laughs> but um, yeah, I thought she did a really good job lighting these portraits yeah. of hair, essentially. I mean, sometimes you're, you see the face, but more so the star of the picture is the hair. And I thought that, um, you know, silver hair obviously reflects the light a little bit differently than the other color, um, that the person might have. So I just thought the way that the light rested upon the hair, it was honestly, they're really beautiful. The the lighting definitely stood out for me. And I, I was very conscious in looking at them at the directionality of light, you know, because people weren't dyeing their hair, of course, the roots showed the gray And Mm -hmm. she often positioned the light to kind of hit that gray patch in a very, it it was subtle, but it still highlighted the the hair, in my opinion, the the gray parts Mm -hmm. of the hair, leaving the dyed portions to really fall off, uh, you know, Mm. as the light fell off as well. I, I also thought about this fact of, you know, how many people we haven't seen, friends or family, in nearly two years. I mean, I haven't seen you, Sarah, in... yeah probably since like January of 2020. That's true. I mean, it's crazy. And and thinking about all the changes, both physical and emotional and social that people have undergone during that time. Um, You know, it was my mother's birthday the other day and my cousins came over and one cousin had gained, you know, his COVID-19. His daughters (laughs) who are in their teenage years, you know, I haven't seen them since they were kids. So it's not even necessarily COVID related, but you know, a kid, a year in a kid's life is is dramatic uh, yeah. in terms of you know development and physical growth and all this kind of stuff. So it was it was really interesting to have conversations with these children who were formerly children, but now are like young adults in in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. We we've all changed, and really, you can't tell via Zoom because you know the camera <laughs> quality is just. Not great. Oh, and I use so. that, you know, touch up your appearance option and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, this this story had me thinking, you know, why why is gray hair, like, for women stigmatized? I mean, obviously for men, you know, it, all of a sudden they're the silver fox, you know, yeah. if they have the gray hair. And, you know, there has been a more modern trend within the last just few years of women embracing their gray, their grays and it being sort of like this high fashionable thing, which I just think is so cool. And I, I, I hope that society embraces it more, um, because it it really is, it can be very stunning and beautiful. Well, and you know, there was a a bit of a trend where younger women were dyeing their hair gray and then putting maybe a little bit of color in there and it looked really cool. Mm-hmm. But I had a friend that did that. I guess it's yes. sort of, you know, grass is always greener. You, you want what you don't have. And then when it's real gray, you're totally. like, oh. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really can't talk. I get highlights. So. That's okay. I it's okay. My hair. It's all good. It's all good. You look great. <laughs> you need them for, your, for your selfies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
for my content creation. All the links we talked about today, you can find on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. While you're here, hit that subscribe button, leave us a rating or a comment. You can always tweet at us at photoshelter. Thanks for listening this week. We're going to take the 4th of July weekend off. So we'll talk to you in the second week of July. Have a great one, everyone. Bye-bye. Photo Shelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.